What's the title of the series? Wind of Change, right? Here it comes. All right, that's good. The Holy Spirit showed up. Okay, Wind of Change, Romans 7, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but, uh, but what I hate to do. And if I do not do, okay, every time I read this, I get stuck in all these do's and do's and do's. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. I've heard that many times throughout my life. Many of you have probably used it. I have. To describe the struggles that we have as believers. There's just one problem. I don't think that's what it's saying. I don't think this has anything to do with the Christian life. And I'm going to try to convince you that this is not a description of the Christian life at all. Granted, I recognize that uh, I'm probably in the minority of those here today, that this is not a good description of the Christian life. It's doing something very different. Let me tell you why. Uh, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, and you notice there's no mention of the Holy Spirit. How can we talk about spiritual life without the Holy Spirit? That seems to be a flaw, flaw in the discussion. Second of all, in verse 14, uh, he says, uh, I am sold as a slave to sin. And then in verse 23, he says, I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So I'm a slave to sin and I'm a prisoner to sin. That's what he says. But listen to what he says the chapter before in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 5. If we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died with Christ has been set free from sin. So why would he, uh, why would he just argue in the whole chapter 6 that uh, we've been set free from sin? And we're no longer slaves to sin, and then turn around and say we're slaves to sin. That doesn't make sense. So that's another reason I don't think it's related to the Christian. He concludes in chapter 7, verse 24, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched man I am. It's a cry of despair. It's a cry that reflects total defeat. That seems to go against the whole tide of the New Testament about uh, what we have found in Christ and life in the Spirit. Um, if this is talking about a Christian... Is very dark and despairing. It's a very dark picture of what the life of in Christ is like, life in the Spirit is like. I don't think he's talking about that at all. Because the answer, 
What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think this is a discussion of what it's like for the unbeliever. Who is in fact enslaved to sin. It's the non-Christian who's caught in this despair and this trap, this dark world. It's not the Christian. Very different words are used to describe the Christian journey. The answer is turning to Jesus. So then, here's how he concludes it. I find, or I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. That's a bleak picture. That's a dark picture. And the answer is turning to Jesus. This is a plea. This is a cry for those of you who feel that enslavement to sin, who have not yet found Jesus. This is a plea for you. Who will deliver me? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. He's the answer to that darkness. Then he goes on in chapter 8, and he does introduce the Spirit. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Once you've accepted Jesus, you find no longer any condemnation. None. None whatsoever. It's done. Condemnation is over. It's in the past. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, something brand new, the Spirit is just now getting introduced, who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death that he just described in Romans 7. So the answer to this horrible place to be, this enslavement, this dark world, is turning to Jesus. Once you turn to Jesus, the Spirit comes, and then you're set free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful humanity to be a sin offering. This, what this says is this one true God that we believe in, he didn't forget us. He remembered his promise. He came back for us. He sent his son. You hear me say that over and over and over again throughout the year. That's the message of Christmas. God did not forget us. He came back for us. Emmanuel? What does that mean? God with us. God with us. So he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful humanity to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in human flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, might be fulfilled in us. Now pause and just reflect on that. He sent his son not so that we might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. That's not what it says. It's passive voice. So that the righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled in us. What is the righteous requirement of the law? How did Jesus summarize the law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is likened unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. That's the righteous requirement of the law. And all of a sudden, we have this very fascinating verse for those of us that have turned to Jesus. He condemns sin in order that this righteous requirement would be fulfilled in us. It's done. It's a surprise. 
He could have said so that you will fulfill the law, but that's not it. It's already fulfilled in you. It's done. He has a little qualifier who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. So who's that? And is he saying you have a choice here? Well, let's go on. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. You notice he's now introducing choice, which he didn't introduce in chapter 7. Chapter 7, you're enslaved to sin. You have no choice. But now he's talking about as a believer, he's beginning to introduce that you actually have a choice. The mind controlled by the sinful nature is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but are in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If you have turned to Jesus, you have met this condition. The spirit of God lives in you. So for those of you that have already turned to Jesus, here's how it reads to you. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but are in the spirit, since the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. It's pretty simple. So for the non-believer, let's just review what we just read here. For the person who has not found their way yet to Jesus, they feel that entrapment. They feel that enslavement. They feel that lack of choice. That's what they're struggling with. And the answer, who will rescue me from this wretched, this body of sin? Thanks be to God who has delivered us in Jesus Christ. When you turn to Jesus, something wonderful begins to happen you begin to now experience choice, freedom, for the first time. For the first time. Does that make sense? So I would encourage you not to use Romans 7 to describe you because it's fundamentally a violation of Romans 6. You have been set free. You now have the choice. By the way, the greatest gift that God can give us to show us dignity is choice. He let you choose. He let you choose him or not. That's the heart of the Christian gospel. That the one true living God who created all of this and all of you loves this creation so much that he's willing to do whatever it takes, pay whatever price is necessary to win you over, to get your attention. So what it means is it comes down to God has given you. He's given you a choice. What a statement of a loving God that you have that kind of choice. You get to choose or not. And so the the whole act of turning to Christ is a choice on your part to decide that there's a better way. And you figured out that you can't do it on your own. Holy Spirit's working underneath all that to convict and convince and do all those wonderful things. But the bottom line is, you're the one that has to say, I believe. I believe. 
I don't know if there's a, I don't know if there's a greater loving act there is. And by the way, when, when God decided to pay whatever price was necessary, he only had one thing to sacrifice. If he sacrificed a tree, that wouldn't have been a sacrifice. He could just make another one. If he sacrificed an animal, that wouldn't be a sacrifice. If he sacrificed all of creation, it wouldn't be a sacrifice. He made it all. He only had one thing to demonstrate his love when it came to sacrifice, and that was his son, because he didn't create his son. See how powerful this message is of Christianity about God's deep, passionate love for you? Okay, so what about the believer? Now we're going to turn to Galatians. We're nearing the end of our series in the amphitheater. We started back in Genesis, and we saw the Spirit of God hovering over creation, over the waters, over their confusion and the chaos. And then as we unfolded the Old Testament, we saw the Holy Spirit presented in two very distinct ways. Every time creation is mentioned, the Holy Spirit shows up. He's the one that breathes life into you. He's, he's given that role in the Old Testament. We see it. And the second thing is, as the world became darker and darker, and as we moved into deeper levels of sin, back in Genesis, there wasn't as much sin. They simply rebelled. That was enough. But as the scriptures unfold, you see this, this stepping down into horrendous, horrible ways of relating and treating each other. The darker it got the brighter the message about the Spirit became. Because what God said is, there's a day coming, I won't forget you, when I'm going to send my Spirit. And what do we know? He's going to put His Spirit inside of us. He's going to take out that, that heart of stone. It's, it's so hard. What Paul's describing in Romans 7, complete enslavement. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And that was the promise of the Old Testament. And then we moved from there into the Gospels. And we looked at what Jesus said, that the Spirit is coming. And all of a sudden, you're going to become like wells of, of spring water. It's just overflowing, gushing up when the Spirit comes. Each of you, that describes our life, our lives in the Spirit. And that should describe our lives as a church. Don't ever be ashamed of the Gospel. Don't be afraid to tell people that you're a Christian. Don't be afraid to talk about Jesus. They don't know who he is. It's okay. When you get into trouble, when you're sharing your faith, is when you talk about church and religiosity. Move away from that. Talk about Jesus. Because most of the world doesn't know who Jesus is. We now live in a society where most people don't really know who he is. So what happens to the believer? Now you have to turn to Galatians. Paul picks up the same argument in Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, this is a well-known passage at the end, but he begins the chapter saying, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's the very thing that he said, he just said in Romans 8. He sent the Spirit so that we might find freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. A yoke of slavery, very Interesting language there. He, that's used once before by Peter at, uh, in Acts 15. In Acts 15, when they're at the, uh, um, the Jerusalem Council, um, I forgot where it is now, <laughs> but it's in there. 
Oh, yeah, verse 10. They're talking, and they say, Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we, we can't even bear the yoke, or our ancestors? Why do you put this yoke on on these believers, these young believers? So Paul says, Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to the old way. He's argued over and over again that you're no longer a slave to sin. That master has been defeated. The problem is not that slave sin is a master anymore because it's not. The problem is you're not convinced. Paul goes on in Romans 12 to say, be transformed by the renewing of your mind and prove what the will of God is. Right? Every command after that is about how we love each other. It's about how we move into the lives of people. Every single command after Romans 12. So when you pass from death to life, when you turn to Jesus, you find freedom. It is, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Is that a loving God or what? He wants you to have freedom? He wants you to now be able to choose, to be able to decide. Then Paul goes on and talks about what happens if you're circumcised and you try to obey the law, uh, verses 2 through 12. And he's going he's to prevent that pendulum from swinging from end to end. On one end, you have to obey the law. That's what they were being taught. And he said, no, you don't. Because if you're going to be held to that standard, then you have to be held accountable to the entire law. And you can't do that. History already proved that. So at one end, you have people saying you have to keep the law. Or as he says in Colossians, if you've been raised with Christ, Christians, if you've been raised with Christ, why do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not taste, do not touch, do not drink, do not, do not honor these festivals, these holidays, these new moons? If you've been raised with Christ, why do you submit yourself to those decrees? Living life as a Christian means that you have ultimate freedom. So he argues, don't listen to those who put this yoke on you again. This is legalism. But then he wants to make sure you don't go the other direction. Verse 13, my, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sin for nature, sinful nature. So if legalism is over here, now he comes over to this side and says, yeah, but the opposite isn't true either. It's not licentiousness. You can do whatever you want. It's not license. You can go do whatever you want. That's not it at all. So he's helping us to understand this new freedom. We just have been given this freedom when we turn to Christ, but we don't understand it. On one end, we try so hard like the Pharisees. And, you know, we're very good Pharisees, by the way, aren't we? We talk about the, the laws that make us help us please God and all that. He say, no, 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 no. Don't swing the pendulum over here. Then you go over here on the other direction and you say, well, I guess we can do whatever we want. He said, no, you can't do that either. Here's what freedom means. Do not use your freedom, verse 13, to indulge a sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. That's what freedom means. You are finally able to fulfill your created design. God made you to love each other. That's what it means. That's what it means to be a Christian. 
you're finally able to love each other. Quit worrying about the laws, the regulations. Quit worrying about those. I've asked several groups in our church, what is the criteria that you use to decide whether to obey a command of the New Testament, ignore a command, or change a command? Because you all do it. Every one of you. I see lots of gold jewelry out there on our women. Right? What's the criteria that you use? Sometime we'll have a further discussion about that. Because there is an effective criteria. Paul's point here is that you have been given freedom. And what that freedom means is you finally are now in a position to fulfill your created design, that is to love people. That's what you're made for. That's what you're made for. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus reduced the law down to two commands, love God and love people. Paul reduced it down to one. He never says the first one. But he says this one several times, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. And you know what? 95, 98% of the commands in the New Testament are all based on loving people. Love one another, forgive one another, carry one another's burdens, on and on and on. Which tells me that what John said in 1 John is true. If you say you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. You cannot love God unless you love each other. You just can't. And that's what freedom means. When you turn to Christ and the Spirit comes and puts that heart of flesh in, you are finally able to fulfill your created design to love one another. Verse 16, Therefore I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. Here's a very important verse. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. You got, the, you got the desires of the sinful nature and you've got the desires of the spirit and they're doing this. They fight. So when you start to feel that tug, that temptation, right? Maybe you're looking at something you shouldn't be looking at and you feel that, that wrestling in the spirit. Maybe somebody has uh, gotten you upset and you, and, you're, and you feel that anger and you're feeling that wrestle in the spirit. That's the time to praise God because these are here so you can't do what you want. The sin nature isn't eradicated until the future. So God put these together inside of you. That's what his spirit does. And that fight, that battleground inside of your spirit, that should cause you to jump up and down and praise God. Because that's how you know that your faith is real. That's how you know. So when you feel this tug of war here, when you feel this tug of war, you want to do something, but your conscience says, oh, you know better than that. But you want to do it anyway. Sometimes you give in. Sometimes you're successful. That's okay. That's okay. The fact that you've got this fight is an evidence of God's presence. These are in conflict opposition with one another so that you won't do what you want to do. The fact that you want to do it says that you have a choice. That's what freedom is all about. That's what freedom is all about. So where have we come with the Spirit of God? Acts 2. Spirit came whistling through, rushing through Jerusalem, and they began to speak the word of God boldly to their friends and neighbors. Don't ever be ashamed of the gospel. 
Don't be afraid to tell people that you're a Christian, that you believe in Jesus. In fact, if they respond harshly to you, that's a good thing. I love that when that happens. When people react to me harshly, I just turn around and say, boy, I can tell from your reaction that you don't think very highly of Christians. Why is that? And you'll hear fascinating stories. So that's what happened. But then Paul goes one step further and says, it's far deeper than that. Because when the Spirit comes, we finally have freedom. We can choose. That's what life in the Spirit is all about, the ability to choose. You get to choose every day, every hour, every minute of every day. Yeah, you can get mad. Well, no, you could decide not to get mad. You can grumble or complain. No, you could decide not to do that. You know all these commands. It's your choice now. Something that the non-Christian didn't have the choice of. If you've not turned to Jesus, Romans 7 is a plea to turn to Jesus. He is the answer. And then when the Spirit comes, as a Christian, you have freedom. Enjoy the freedom. Make the most of it. Live life to the fullest. One of my fundamental idioms of life is that life is hard enough. We ought to laugh as much as possible as we can because it is a challenge. Christ said, I came that they might have an abundant life. So as a spirit, as a Christian with a spirit inside of you, what that means is you finally are able to fulfill your divine, um, your created intent. That's to love people. Is that a loving God or not? That's what the Spirit does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not forgetting us. Lord, we will never tire of saying that. Thank you, Lord, for remembering your promise, your covenant to those before us and to us. Thank you for sending your son, Emmanuel, so that you yourself could live in our midst. And Father, most of all, thank you for creating us to enjoy choice and freedom and to enjoy loving each other, but then sending your spirit so we can make it possible, so you can make it possible for us to do that. And Lord, for fulfilling that wonderful requirement of the law in us. We do love people. We do love. We do love you. In fact, we have to fight against it to stop it because it's now been fulfilled in us. If we're not loving, it's because, it's because we're willfully rebelling. So, Lord, help us to love the people around us in better and better ways. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. We, uh, we'd like to turn now toward a time of Response, we're going to do several things. We're going to take an offering. After we take an offering, we're going to celebrate communion together as a community of faith. And we'll pray together. We do all of that. So uh, I'm going to ask the ushers to come on down and take the offering. And just let me say, as I do every week, thank you for your generosity. Um, go ahead and start. It's fine. For those of you that are uh, members of our church, you've proven to me over and over and over again to be very generous. Thank you for that. I see your expression of the gospel in, the, in your giving. For those of you that are believers, I'd like to just add a special on top of that. Thank you. Because uh, you saw how small our church was. Our church isn't big enough to pay for all of this. You guys are the ones that make it possible for us to worship outdoors. I'm just grateful. All of us are at DCC. Thank you. So um, if the Lord puts it on your heart, feel free to give. We will use your money well.
Um, also, as you leave, uh, there's little kind of baskets or lanterns-like at each of the exits. Those, it says on there, community needs, benevolence fund, those, that kind of language. Every dollar that goes in there, if the Lord puts it on your heart, goes to families that are in need, most of them, almost all of them outside of our church, to help our county. Uh, it's a very broken county. Only 17% of our people in our county go to church. Um, and so we use that money to help people. So I would just like to say thank you if God puts that on your heart as well. So enjoy giving, all right? And if you're at a point where it's hard for you to give and you can't do it with joy, then just, just pause. But if you can give with joy, then give. Give a lot. is in, um, in there, but we're going to teach you this song. It's just um, a response to the message today. Asking the Lord to really be that source of life, the source